Hello and welcome. You're listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show podcast. Join me as we go delving through the archives to find out about people, places and events that happened in the past. These were stories that were big news in their day, but are largely forgotten now. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at Backtracker UK with a capital B, capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk Now, on with the show. As always, I'll tell you what else happened in the year of this episode's event. And this time we're going back to the year 1857, when on the 3rd of March, France and the United Kingdom formally declared war on China in the Second Opium War. Also on March the 3rd, the largest slave auction in US history is held, dubbed the Weeping Time. Over a two-day period, starting on March the 2nd, Pierce M. Butler sells 436 men, women, children and infants, all of whom are kept in stalls meant for horses at a racetrack in Savannah, Georgia, for weeks beforehand. The 10th of May, soldiers in the army of the British East India Company rose up against the British. The unrest soon spread to other army divisions and towns across North and Central India, By the time the rebellion was over, hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of people had been killed, and India was changed forever. The British government disbanded the British East India Company and took direct control of India, bringing an end to the Mughal Empire. On the 20th of June, the Victoria and Albert Museum in London is officially opened by Queen Victoria, and if you ever get a chance to go there, then you must, because it's one of my favourite museums in the world. The 28th of August sees the introduction of the Matrimonial Causes Act, which makes divorce, without parliamentary approval, legal in the United Kingdom. And lastly, on December 31st, Queen Victoria chooses Ottawa as the capital of Canada. But we're interested in the sad life of Charlotte Pugsley, a servant from Bristol whose body was found in Lee Woods, near the Clifton Suspension Bridge. Word of the Week And today, the word I give you is... Pulchritudinous, which is an adjective with Latin roots that dates back to the early 1900s. It means... Physically beautiful. And now back to the life and untimely death 
of Charlotte Pugsley. Her mother, Jane Pugsley, was a bound apprentice to Mr Mullins, a yeoman of Longlands in Bishop Lydiard's Somerset. Being a bound apprentice means that you've signed a contract to work for a fixed period of time with food and board included and learning a trade. After that apprenticeship has ended, you're free to seek other employment. This was a way of learning a trade without the family paying for the privilege. During her time working for Mr Mullins, she had an affair with a Joseph Bond who refused to marry her, saying that she had been unfaithful. So she left Mr Mullins in disgrace and went to live with her aunt Mary Pugsley in Wick, where, after a short time, she gave birth to Charlotte in April 1824. Jane, the mother, soon started working at another farm in the neighbourhood and after about two years found herself once again pregnant, this time by a Mr John Westcott. The second child was called Jane. Charlotte's early childhood was full of neglect and by the time she was ten, she couldn't read or write. She was apprenticed as a servant to a Mr H. Ware Esquire of Bishop's Lydiard and it was his wife who sent Charlotte to school, as she had become quite fond of the little girl. Charlotte would do her duties at the Ware's house, and then go to school, where she soon caught up with her peers. Reverend F. Ware said that Charlotte was a favourite with all the inhabitants of the village. At some point in her childhood, Charlotte was out haymaking, when she slipped and became tangled in the wagon's line. She was then thrown from the wagon, and received a horseshoe wound to her head. From then on, hair would never grow on this wound, and it would make identifying her later even easier. When Charlotte was 20, she started working as a servant for Mr Thomas Gibbs, a tallow chandler of Bristol. Charlotte was a kind and caring person. At the age of 21, she asked her uncle in Yarford to accompany her to the Ware's house to express her gratitude for all they had done for her. When they got there, the wares asked her to spend the day with them and gave her some career advice, as well as a gift to show how much she meant to them. Charlotte was said to look younger than her 33 years. She was clean and neat in her appearance, smart and active, always carrying out her work to her very high standards. She left Miss Gibbs to work as a cook for the honorary Mrs Hutchinson, and she started dating a young man from Bristol. Things became so serious that bans were published, but Mrs Hutchinson wasn't keen about the match and persuaded Charlotte to end the relationship, which she did. Charlotte continued to work for Mrs Hutchinson until 1854, when she left to work for Mrs Cave at Brentry, Bristol. She moved around working for several different families, one of which was Mrs Weston in River Street, Bath, which is where she met Beale, whilst he was working for Mr Mogg of Partis College, Bath. This was at the end of 1856, and he would visit her regularly as his intended. In December 1856, Charlotte and her friend Louisa Ford left the service of Mrs Weston to work for Mr Bythesey at Freshford near Bath 
and Beale left Mr. Mogg to become the butler from Captain Watkins of Badby House in Daventry, near Northampton. The relationship continued, but no evidence could be supplied by Captain Watkins, as he had been killed on the way to court. But the other servants working for him told the court that Beale had asked for a week's leave, as his father, a builder in Bath, had fallen from a scaffold and broken both his thighs. His sister, who he described as very sensitive, had been quite upset by the whole situation and had taken ill and then died. Beale wanted to care for his father and attend the funeral of his sister. Meanwhile, Charlotte had received a letter from John William Beale proposing that they should marry and emigrate. After Charlotte had the marriage proposal from Beale, she handed in her notice and started preparing for her new life. On Saturday the 5th of September, Charlotte went to Bath and it was then that she brought the stays that she would wear when she died. That afternoon, she saw some friends, the Burts, and told them her good news. She would be married the following week. She then gave them a gift of a small teapot as a token of remembrance, and the Burts asked if they could all have a cup of tea before she left, as it would be the last time they would see her. She told them that she was very busy, and that someone special was waiting for her. And so, with tears in her eyes, she said goodbye to her friends and left. The Burts suspected that it was Beale who was behind all of this. On the Wednesday before the murder, Charlotte was waiting for Beale with all her things packed, including three new dresses, one of which was her wedding dress. Beale came to Charlotte's employer, Mr Bythesey, to take Charlotte away. He had tea with Charlotte and her close friend, Louisa Ford, before heading towards Limpleystoke Railway Station to go to Bristol, as Beale said he had business there, and then Southampton to be married. Louisa asked Beale many questions regarding the arrangements for the wedding and emigration. She was also one of those who examined the boxes in court and concurred that the contents were indeed Charlotte's. The last time her friend Louisa saw her, Charlotte was wearing a large black Orleans cap, trimmed with black braid and lined with black lining, a speckled straw bonnet with a green curtain edge with crepe, a border of white net and a narrow pink ribbon, and a grey alpaca dress, and a black cloak trimmed with black braid. John William Beale was described as a slight, thin-faced little man, and his pale complexion was said to made look even worse by the fact he had very black eyes and long black hair. His acquaintances said that Beale was a proud man who refused to wear livery. They also said that as soon as Charlotte was paid, Beale would have the money from her, and she always was poor regardless of the fact that she was careful with money and well paid. The story goes that Charlotte and Beale's luggage for the trip comprised of three boxes containing Charlotte's clothes, although labelled with Beale's name. These were taken to Freshford Station, a village six miles southeast of Bath, and put on a train bound for Bristol, and the couple followed on a later train. 
at Bristol Station, Beale apparently took issue with the porter over a charge on the items. Beale said he hadn't the means to pay, so it was agreed that he would return the next day and the boxes were placed in Henry Vinner's office. At the trial, Henry Vinner said that when Beale and Charlotte arrived the following morning, Beale continued to complain about the fee, but after consulting the station manager, came back and paid. Henry then showed the court the record book, which logged the payment made. Interestingly, Beale had told the clerk that they were going to Liverpool, not Southampton, so Vinner assured him that the boxes would be passed over to the Midlands Railway for the ongoing journey. During the trial, Henry Vinner readily recalled the conversation with Beale, but admitted only vaguely remembering the woman accompanying him. Thomas Silverthorne of the Midland Line Cloakroom to the Great Western Company at Bristol Station said, I remember seeing the prisoner on Thursday morning, September 10th, about 11 o'clock. I received three boxes from him addressed Mr Beale to be left till called for. He asked to leave them in the cloakroom and I did so and gave him a ticket which he paid for. I produced the receipt ticket. I've seen the boxes and I've identified them. The prisoner told me he was going to Liverpool when he brought the boxes. There was a woman standing outside the door at the time. When the prisoner went out, she joined him and they went down the street together. The ticket I had given the prisoner was returned in the course of the 12th of September. (laughs) Word on the street. Now this week we're going to Southampton and Vice Lane, next to the Duke of Wellington pub. This was where prostitutes used to entertain sailors, but it was not always called Vice Lane. In fact, its original name was at one point one of the most common street names in all of England. I can't actually tell you what it is, but if you Google Grope Lane, you should find the answer. Personally, I found the testimony of William Jones very interesting. William was a tailor living in Wine Street, Bristol. He said he'd known Charlotte for 18 months. Beale had sent someone to tell his cousin named Wood he was waiting to see him. So William went to the King's Head Inn and stayed there for one and a half hours, taking a pair of trousers for Beale, who returned to the shop the following Tuesday and asked about having a coat made for him. I am a tailor in the employ of Mr Applin of Wine Street, Bristol. On Monday the 7th of September, I saw the prisoner in the evening in Wine Street and went with him to the King's Head Tavern. He remained about an hour and a half and left saying he was going to the casino. The next morning, he came to Mr Applin's shop after a pair of trousers his cousin was making for him. While he was there, he pulled a very small pistol out of his pocket. I saw that the pistol had a cap on it. The prisoner told me it was loaded. I gave the pistol to his cousin to measure the length of it, and he was going to have a pocket made in his coat to hold a pair of pistols. The prisoner afterwards put the pistol into his waistcoat's pocket. The pistol produced by Inspector Norris is very similar to the one I saw. The prisoner said he was going to Bath when he left, and that he might come over on the Wednesday and go to Ashton. Louisa Davy was another witness in court. And here's what she had to say about the 10th of September. 
I am the wife of Corey Davy of Number Two Airs Buildings, Newcut. I knew the prisoner when I lived with Mr. Way of Clifton Down about ten or eleven years ago. I saw him about half past eleven in the morning of Thursday, the tenth of September. I was standing at the gate of my house, which looks out on the cut. The prisoner was coming towards Roundham. He had a young woman with him. I did not speak to the prisoner because I was so dirty. My mother was with me at the gate. She was going home and I wished her goodbye because John Beale was coming. I am quite confident it was the prisoner I saw. I saw them again in a few minutes afterwards. They were then going towards the prison, which is the straightest way to Roundham Ferry. It leads in other ways to Bristol. The woman was dressed in an old packer dress. I did not observe her bonnet. I thought what a tidy person it was he had with him and I looked after them because I had known Bale for so many years. During cross-examination, Louisa said that she lived at Long Ashton where the prisoner was brought up and knew him well. She saw the prisoner in the open road and she was about 10 yards from them. She didn't see the female's face and she did not know Charlotte Pugsley. As you can imagine, on a Thursday at 5pm, there would be loads of witnesses to them walking around Bristol. So I've only included the ones that had something interesting to say and add to the story. Like John Hill, son of John Hill, a tailor, who at about 5pm on the same day, Thursday the 10th of September, saw Beale and Charlotte walking along in Lee Woods. I'm 13 years of age. On Thursday, the 10th of September, I was at the top of Nightingale Valley, inside the wall between 4 and 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Four other boys were with me. I saw a man and a woman at the top of the valley. They were coming from the wall towards the river. I'm sure I should know that man if I saw him again. I took notice of him. He was walking after the young woman. I was up in a tree at this time with another boy, looking down upon them as they passed under. The prisoner's the man. I saw him here on Saturday last. I'd given a description of him before to Mr. Gould, the chief constable, and I afterwards saw the prisoner and identified him. I know the woman had on a dark dress, but I did not notice her bonnet. About a quarter of an hour after I'd seen the prisoner and woman together, I heard the report of a pistol or gun. It came from the direction which they went. It was George West, a keeper who worked at nearby Lee Court, who first discovered a handkerchief covered in blood. He looked around and found a large pool of blood near a precipice, and when he looked over the edge, he saw what looked like the body of a woman. He made his way down to the spot and saw that her throat had been cut and there was a distinct hole in her left temple. He then went for the police. Charlotte's body was taken to the new inn, Ronham. This was near the Ronham Ferry, used to get from the Bristol side of the River Avon to the Lee side. The body was shown to anyone who wanted to view it, so as to get an idea of who she may have been, but to no avail. It was only due to the initial CP being marked on various items of clothing that they could eventually identify her. It was Charlotte's uncle who lived in Yarford in Somerset, a hard-working, intelligent man who came down on the Friday to identify the body officially, but only after a childhood friend of Charlotte, who was living at the Robin Hood Inn in St Paul's, recognised the description that was issued by the police. Mr Lucas, a surgeon of Long Ashton, examined the body at Ronham Inn on the 19th of September. As you can imagine, by this time, decomposition had taken effect. 
He said that Charlotte was covered in blood and dirt, as though she had been dragged through the ground. Her face was very bloody, and there was a long incision under her chin, extending nearly to the right ear. The carotid artery, jugular vein and windpipe were all cut, and some parts had been gnawed away by animals. There was also a pistol wound to the right side of her head, and she had a black eye. The bones of her head were fractured by the bullet, which was slightly flattened. Further examination of the body took place with Mr Godfrey of the Bristol General Hospital. Inspector Norris of the Bath Police Force went to Daventry on the 23rd of September, arriving on the 24th. He said that when he arrested Beale, he had searched Beale's bedroom, unlocking a cupboard and finding a carpet bag with another bunch of keys. He then searched the cellar and found the boxes which the keys unlocked. Later in court, Norris would hand over the complete inventory of things he'd found in the prisoner's bedroom and pantry and in the boxes of the deceased, several of which were identified by Miss Ford, the housekeeper, as the property of Charlotte Pugsley. Norris had also found a coat in the kitchen with a pistol in a special pocket. After taking Beale to Daventry lockup, Norris returned to the residence and found a Bible with the name Louisa Ford inside as well as a bullet mould. All items were brought back to Bristol and Louisa said that that Bible was one she had given Charlotte. In court, the surgeon, Mr Lucas, stated that the pistol produced by Inspector Norris would inflict the wound and discharge the bullet found in the head of the deceased. A bullet received from the inspector was compared to the one taken from the deceased skull and was found to be about 24 grains heavier. Some of the other bullets in the prisoner's powder flask weighed the same or only differed by about a grain. It was noted though that the bullet taken from the skull would be lighter because some of it had come apart when they tried to extract it. The conclusion though was that all the bullets were found to have come from the same mould one found in Beale's possession in his room in Daventry. Inspector Norris also stated in court that on taking the prisoner into custody and charging him with the murder, the prisoner said, I know nothing at all about it. Then the prisoner, acting under the advice of his solicitor, declined saying anything in his defence. Another witness came forward, Eliza Branston, who also worked as a servant for Captain Watkins with Beale. She said that she cleaned Beale's room after he'd left and found a bonnet wire with a little bonnet straw sticking to it in the fire grate. She threw it away with the ashes and told a few other servants about it. A Sarah Guilford, wife of George Guilford, also spoke in court. She told how she had met Beale in Sheaf Street, Daventry, about a month before his arrest. After some polite conversation regarding his family, he said he had a handsome present for her a shawl and bonnet, that she should collect from Captain Watkins' house. On the evening of the 15th of September, she was with her husband in Sheaf Street and saw Beale again. He asked why she hadn't collected the things and she replied that she didn't want them. Beale then spent an hour with the husband who returned with the items. Interestingly, it was discovered in court that Beale's father was actually a butcher, not a builder. He hadn't broken both thighs and none of Beale's sisters had died.
During the trial, Beale's defence said that the fact Beale had Charlotte's things didn't mean he was guilty of murder. Charlotte could have gone off with another man, leaving her items behind. Nonetheless, Beale was found guilty and was hung for his crime in January 1858. In a report by the Bath Chronicle and Weekly Gazette of the 14th of January 1858 regarding Beale's execution, they said that... Beale gave a vacant look around and turned his back to the spectators. Chillingly, the report continued. The executioner placed him in position, adjusted the rope, placed a cap over his face and retired, and in less than a minute the drop fell. His struggles were severe and continued about two minutes and a half. The Taunton Courier reported... Proof of wretched ignorance, prevalent among the lower classes, that a resident from Bath who had a wen on his neck had applied for permission to touch the dead body of the murderer, believing that he would be thereby cured. The application, continued the appalled reporter, was of course refused. It was a common belief in the 18th century through to the abolition of public executions in 1868 that the touch of a freshly hanged man's hand would cure a variety of swellings and wens in particular, while the healing properties of corpses' hands in general were acknowledged and experimented with in early modern medicine. The gallows cure achieved prominence during the second half of the 18th century. Hey, this is Russ. This is Kyle. This is Michelle. From the Infectious Groove Podcast. Join us every Monday for the most fun you can have with a music podcast. The Infectious Groove Podcast uses a positive and fun approach as we take time every week to share our jammy jams, then dig into a thought-provoking topic discussing all decades and genres of music. You can find the Infectious Groove Podcast on all major podcast platforms, or you can head to infectiousgroovepodcast.com to find us there and subscribe. We might have a controversial opinion here or there, but we always have fun with it. Oh, I'm sure I'll say something dumb. Subscribe to the Infectious Groove Podcast, part of the Odd Pods Media Network. Back in the day facts. Let's start with the 19th of November 1911, when the Doom Bar in Cornwall claims two ships the Island Maid and the Angelie, the latter killing the entire crew except the captain. On the 20th of November, 1407, John the Fearless, Duke of Burgundy and Louis of Valois, Duke of Orleans, agreed to a truce, but Burgundy would kill Orleans three days later. And also on the 20th of November, but in 1820, an 80-ton sperm whale attacks and sinks the Essex, a whaling ship, from Nantucket, Massachusetts, some 2,000 miles from the western coast of South America. Herman Melville's 1851 novel Moby Dick was in part inspired by this incident. The 20th of November 1965 sees The Supremes, I Hear a Symphony, become a number one hit from November 20th to December 3rd, 1965. 
the 21st of November 1927, in the town of Serene, Colorado, a fight broke out between Colorado State Militia and a group of striking coal miners, during which the unarmed miners were attacked with firearms. The miners testified that machine guns were fired at them, which the state police disputed. Six strikers were killed and dozens were injured. On the 22nd of November 1718, Royal Navy Lieutenant Robert Maynard attacks and boards the vessels of the British pirate Edward Teach, best known as Blackbeard, off the coast of North Carolina. The casualties on both sides include Maynard's first officer, Mr Hyde, as well as Teach himself. The 22nd of November 1995, and Toy Story is released as the first feature-length film created completely using computer-generated imagery. On the 23rd of November 1910, murderer Johan Alfred Ander becomes the last person to be executed in Sweden, and the only one executed by guillotine. On the 24th of November 1917 in Milwaukee, nine members of the Milwaukee Police Department are killed by a bomb, the most deaths in a single event in US police history until the September 11th attacks in 2001. And lastly, on the 24th of November 1963, Lee Harvey Oswald, the assassin of President John F. Kennedy, is killed by Jack Ruby. Detectives were escorting Oswald through the basement of Dallas Police Headquarters towards an armoured car that was to take him from the city jail to the nearby county jail. At 11.21am, Dallas nightclub owner Jack Ruby approached Oswald from the side of the crowd and shot him once in the abdomen at close range. The crowd outside the headquarters applauded when they heard that Oswald had been shot. An unconscious Oswald was taken by ambulance to Parkland Memorial Hospital, the same hospital where Kennedy was pronounced dead two days earlier. Oswald died at 1.07pm and Dallas Police Chief Jesse Curry announced his death on a TV news broadcast. And now, my friends, it's time for me to say goodbye. But don't worry, because I'll be here same time, same place, next week. I'd like to send a huge thanks to those people who lend their voices to bring these stories to life. And in this episode, we had Julian Kendall, Kate Kendall and Jacob Kendall as well as Joe Wilson and Sam Roberts from St. Stephen's Drama Group in Bristol, and Steve Shepherd from our very own Bradley Stoke Radio. Thank you, one and all. Thank you once again for listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking up at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T, and a capital UK. I also occasionally post onto TikTok and Instagram. So do come along and find me, because it's amazing to hear from you and get some feedback or even ideas for future shows. As a small independent podcaster, your help and support is always appreciated. And one way you can do that is to rate the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leaving a review also helps as it gives other people an idea of what the show's about. The show is regularly released on Mondays. So until next time, guys, 
take care and look after each other.